Genesis 11. Genesis chapter 11. We are going to continue uh, our study into Genesis, and um, I want to, I do want to take uh, time to read Genesis 11, 1 through 26. So I know you just sat down, but would you stand for the reading of the word this morning? This is the word of God, authoritative, entirely for our good, for our joy, for our training, for our strengthening, for our correction, that we might give glory to God through our lives. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, They are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they will propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood, and Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years, and had other sons and daughters. And when Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years, and had other sons and daughters. And when Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Reu lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor, and Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah, and Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the word of God for us this morning. You can be seated. If you're like most people in this country and the world for the matter, it's a temptation to begin feeling rather discouraged about the prospects of the kingdom of God expanding amid the seemingly growing darkness all around us. Often people look for security in things like government or, or military might or economics or the internet or satellite systems or whatever. Even followers of Jesus can tend to, the, the followers of Jesus who are citizens of a an entirely other kingdom, will work hard to seek security in the strength of man rather than relying on God. You remember the Israelites are on the cusp right now of the promised land, as we've been made aware numerous times through our time in Genesis. They're facing lots of fears. They're facing lots of doubts. 
And at this point in Israel's history, when Moses is writing these things in Genesis for them, uh, they've been those who've already suffered greatly under the hand of the evil nation, Egypt, right? We know the story of Egypt and the deliverance from Egypt. And now they're facing the Canaanites. The Canaanites are, as we saw last week, a, a number of nations that, that, that kind of went into the area of Palestine, the, the area that currently is Israel and Palestinian territories and a couple of other places. Um, and these Canaanites were people who had a penchant for evil. They lived for themselves. They uh, had a full rejection of Yahweh, of God, of the true God, a longing to place themselves, um, uh, trust in themselves rather than God, and then they desired to follow the false gods around them, gods like Baal or other gods in their area. P point being, the situation we find ourselves in almost daily, while circumstantially different, is foundationally the same as the Israelites. We enter each day facing some element of doubt that God is going to be true to His promises, that His kingdom will in fact prevail. Perhaps it shows up in our small or large complaints that fill our minds throughout the days in our parenting or our marriage or our work or our interaction with others in the culture that we live. Perhaps it shows up in our fears or our anxieties about very real concerns we have about our health or about our parenting or about our marriage or about the culture. How, however it shows up, in the deepest part of our hearts, below the complaints, below the fears, below the anxieties, sits a sea of doubt about God and His good, sovereign rule. And we don't know how to move forward in life other than, you know, just do the next thing. Or, you know, the statement, this too shall pass. Except, unless the foundations of our life are not firmly and continually set on the solid rock of our God and all His promises to be who He is and who He's promised to be, the this too that we think will pass will not pass. We will sit in that fear, sit in that anxiety. You and I will end up standing on the precipice of the promised land in fear and trepidation and complaint and misplaced hope, afraid to hope, afraid to trust, afraid to believe and enjoy the, the goodness and gentleness and surety of all who God says He is, all who God's promised to be. Now, the primary point I would like to make this morning is this. The sovereign plan of our sovereign King to restore His glorious kingdom on earth is meant to provide hope to you and to me amid the darkness of the secular kingdoms all around us. And surely there are secular kingdoms all around us. We are in one. The sovereign plan of our sovereign King to restore His glorious kingdom on earth is meant to provide hope. Why we prayed right there is to ask the Lord that His kingdom would come in power in this moment, in this, in this area of bringing healing, because we know that the kingdom to come all healing will be full. We're just asking for an inbreaking of that kingdom right now in these moments. So what we're going to see this morning, I hope, is that God will not allow the wickedness of man and the enemy of our faith to disrupt the spread of the glory of His kingdom. Um, his glory around the world, around the nations, no matter what we see on the news, no matter what Fox News says, no matter what CNN says, no matter what whatever in between stream you have, whatever it is that's saying God's kingdom will prevail. 
And that is hope for Israel, and that's hope for you and I this morning. He will indeed, as we've mentioned over and over again, that He will indeed redeem a people for Himself to dwell with from among the nations, not just from among certain people groups, but from among the nations for His glory to dwell with forever. We, we entered the book of Genesis uh, considering the reality that the story we come to in Genesis is far greater than we could ever imagine. We come with all sorts of preconceived ideas, notions, understandings, and all that, and God is lifting our heads to see His glory. So I talked about, a number of months ago, I talked about like looking at the forest rather than the specific trees. Well, here we're going to look at a, a really enormous tree, which does speak about the forest of God's glory among the nations. We'll take a look this morning at just two things. First, we're going to see that the heart of the nations is one of purposeful rebellion against God. And secondly, we'll see that the heart of God is one of purposeful redemption of many from among the nations. First, the heart of the nations is one of purposeful rebellion against God. Now, I want to just make a point that last week we talked about the table of nations and what we come to, and, and all of the nations, if you remember, all of the nations spoke their own language. They had their own language, they had their own clans, they had their own tribes. Now, now the very first verse that we come to says they all had one language. So what we see is not a conflicting, like a controversy kind of thing brewing. It is that Moses has said, now let me step back for a second and let's talk about this that happened when Peleg was born. And you remember that um, Peleg was the guy that says that that's when the earth was divided. So he says this, um, or, or uh, Genesis 11 verse 3 says this, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. These people who had all had one language, all had one kind of way of thinking, they also had this one new technology, this, this new technology that Israel didn't have even in the time when Moses was writing. Moses was, they, Israel was used to stone and mortar, and, and now these guys, these, they're, they're filled with lots of wisdom. And of course, that land has lots of oil products and that kind of stuff, and so they're building these bricks, and they're able to do what they're going to do. Now, what's the big deal? Well, ultimately, the big deal, the big issue is this. Through their one language, through their unity, their full unity, they desired to exalt themselves over the sovereign king. That's, that's, that's a big deal. They desired to exalt themselves over the sovereign king. And even bricks and mortar became more important because they were thinking about how big they were. For the Israelites, again, they, they were looking at this and they were like, well, well they, are, they are big. They are they are huge. It's not that technology was bad. It's not that our technology is bad. It's what we do with it. It's what they did with it back in that day. What was their purpose in it? And that leads to the primary issue that I want to get at this morning in verse 4. It says that they said this, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The first issue I want us to consider is found in the first two-thirds of that verse. They want to build for themselves a city, 
and they want to make a name for themselves. Now, ambition is, is good. Ambition, godly ambition is good. Ambition that causes us to glorify God by our bodies and our hands and our, our, our eyes and our ears and our, our actions is, is good. But, but ambition for moving away from and rejecting God, that's, that's unholy ambition. Ambition that acts for the glory of something other than the glory of God and the good of others is simply sinful. It's selfish ambition. And oftentimes, most times among the nations, humankind's ambitions are selfish. This is why James says in chapter 3, verse 13, he says this, Who among you is wise and understanding? Uh, let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, it's natural, and it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. And at Babel, man, jealousy and selfish ambition existed. And so disorder and every evil thing happened. This is what we come to in our text this morning. These people had a kind of wisdom. Surely they're technological marvels, really, but, but it was not godly wisdom. There was no desire to live in submission to God's rule. There was no desire to live in submission to God's ways, to His wisdom. There was, a, there was, a, there was only a desire to establish their own way, to, to, to make gods of themselves, to do their own thing, the, to make much of themselves and to enter glory in it all, to say, say, is this not Babylon, the city which I made, and I, I did this, and I did that. This, this is the heart of Babel. This is the heart of the whole earth. This wisdom and ambition weren't good and godly, but it was earthly, and it was unspiritual. And hear me, and hear James when he says it was demonic. It's no wonder then that the result was, as James speaks of, disorder and every evil practice. These people intended to build a city. Now, what's the big deal? Well, it's not a city dedicated to God it's, and to the glory of His name, but it was a city dedicated to man. And if that doesn't land on you like as a big deal, it's like, well, that's part of the problem among the nations. And we're like, we're like, well, what's the big deal with that? The big deal is that the city was about their glory and not God's glory. That's the big deal. And that's what we've seen in Genesis so far. That was in the line of Cain, the, the wickedness of Cain, of wanting to, he built a city, he wanted to build, he wanted to make a name for himself, he wanted all, all, all glory, he wanted to follow himself, he did not want to follow God, he did not want to submit to God, he wanted to submit to nobody. And biblically, as I mentioned last week, the city of Babel um, uh, over the periods of decades and centuries and millennia is, um, is Babylon, and it stands for everything that opposes God and His people in the earth. It's not just simply a city. It is the city of man. It is the city that is rejecting God. It is the people of mankind, of humankind, who, who live for themselves, who live for their glory and not for the glory of God. And we could go to all sorts of passages and throughout Scripture and in Revelation in particular to just kind of pepper, pepper this out. But just 
you can look this week and look at Revelation, and anytime you look at Babylon and see what's happening, there is judgment after judgment after judgment against Babylon until the very end. Um, Babylon being thrown down with violence, uh, be found no longer, because Babylon is the, the great whore, the, the, the one who has just infested the nations. But it's not just a city that they want to build. They also want to build a tower with its top in the heavens. Not just any tower, not just like uh, whatever, the Seattle needle or whatever. It's not just something like that. It's, it's, this is a, a temple. Uh, it's a Mesopotamian ziggurat. These, these temples throughout history are, are no mere meaningless structure. They were built specifically for religious purposes. So, so the people here of Mesopotamia are saying absolute no and rejection to God, and they are going to build a temple in honor of themselves and the gods that they follow. These people built this tower to reach heaven in the hope that the various gods of heaven that they, they were, the various gods in, in the heavens that they worshiped would, would see them and they had become familiar with them and they, they would descend upon the mountain and, and that they built this, this ziggurat and they would be able to interact with them to some extent and, and possibly even take their place among the gods themselves. Remember that their primary objective in building the temple was to establish the glory and greatness of their name, of, of human, human. They desired to not only make a name for themselves among the nations, but among the heavenly realm also, among the sons of God, the, 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 the fallen ones, among the gods themselves. These early Babylonians built their temple with the hopes that it would function like a stairway to heaven per se, uh, where the gods would descend to them and they would ascend to take place among the gods. This is a prototype of every false religion throughout the generations. They desire to obtain immortality by their own effort. They want to be God themselves. This is, the, this is the core of every false religion. And so I just must stop here for a moment and just ask you, this is not the primary point of this text, but it is worth these implication kind of things on us to just kind of pull out for a second. How is it this reveals itself in you, this desire to make a name for yourself? I know you're not building a Mesopotamian ziggurat in your backyard. How are you building that in your heart, trying to make much of yourself, living for your own glory, the way you interact with your spouse, the way you interact with your kids, the way you interact with the culture? How might you be striving to exalt yourself over the sovereign king? And these are real questions I want you to ask yourself. How might you be striving to exalt yourself in this day and this week over the sovereign king in just the mundane realities of life. Well, there's another issue that's at hand. Not just do they want to make a name for themselves and glory in themselves, they intend also to reject the sovereign authority of the king. So they're rejecting him, making much of themselves, but they also are rejecting the sovereign authority of the king. They say that they, everything that they're doing here is so that they would not be scattered around the world. Like, so they're building this mountain. They're, they're come together. Let's do this together. Let's do this all together in unity against this, this, this God that created us, this God that took us, moved us into this land. We've rejected him and rejected him and rejected him. We have nothing to do with him. We don't have anything to do with him. He wants us to 
be fruitful and multiply and go across the globe with the glory of his name. Now what do they do? We don't want to do that. We want to all stay together. We want to all stay together in safety and security, and we want to interact with our own gods. Thank you very much. They were rejecting the plan and will of God. Even after the flood, God told Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the Babel, people seek to disobey God's creation, he, the creation this creation mandate. He, they, they intend. You see, it's a, it's a posture. It's a heart of just saying, I'm not going to do it. We're not going to do it. It's absolute rejection. What we see in Babel is 100% mutiny. What we see is 100% stick it to the man. What we see is 100% disbelief and derision and, and self-worship and self-trust and self-belief. And what has happened here in Babel is 100% rejection of and rebellion against God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no Noah to be found righteous any longer. All the peoples were gathering, perhaps around the Nimrod character that we talked about last week from chapter 10, in defiant opposition to God and to his ways. And so this is, this is, the, this is the core of who ends up being the nations. This is the, the core of people who are going after and just going after rejecting God, rejecting God, making a name for themselves. And here's the kicker. The rebellion that was existing in their own heart was not simply their own. Their rebellion stinks of the enemy of God. That, that ancient dragon that showed his simultaneously beautiful and absolutely evil head in the garden when he spoke to Eve on that, on that one day, tempting them, Adam and Eve, to distrust God, to disbelieve him, to make much of themselves. Matter of fact, what did he say? But Will you not become God yourself? You see, the, the desire that Adam and Eve had was to become like God, to make a name for themselves, as it were. This is the enemy of God that filled Cain with evil and rejection of God, who moved away from God, and he made a name for himself in a city to find security. And this is the enemy of God, or the enemies of God, whom we see in chapter 6, taking the peoples uh, prior to the flood to a place where we read this. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the situation we have here at Babel again. Just generations after prior to the flood. And now this activity of the enemy of God, not long after the flood itself, working to incite one very large group of people, speaking one language in the same words and being in one accord to question God, to disregard Him, to despise Him, to disobey Him, and to live then in opposition to God and to His ways and His plan of spreading the fame of His name, His glory throughout the entire globe. They are in absolute rejection of that and they don't want to have anything to do with it. They're just going to live for themselves. Thank you very much. And actually what they're doing is not just living for themselves, but they're living for false gods. The principalities and the rulers of this dark world that we so quickly go to Ephesians 6 for, but really kind of maybe put them in a category that we're not quite sure about and disbelieve. The reality is, is that behind the situation here is the reality of the false gods at work in man 
along with mankind's tendency towards wanting to reject God anyway, and it just goes worse and worse and worse. They, these demons, they want, strive hard to turn mankind away from Yahweh and towards themselves. This is the heart of the nations. As good as a nation might be, as good as a nation might, a nation might have been founded, the heart of the nations is one of rejection of God and making a name for themselves. Purposeful rebellion against God. Nice, maybe nice, maybe super nice people. Doing a lot of good things. Making a name for ourselves. And at Babel, we find this rebellion unhindered. It is one group of people, one language, going hard after rejecting God. And so I stop again and just ask you, again, not the main point, but an implication. How do you see this purposeful disobedience in your own life? You, you say you believe in Jesus, you profess Jesus, but how do you see this kind of purposeful desire to make a name for yourself and to trust in yourself and, and to disobey God? What, what sin will you simply not kill? Are there areas of your life that you have not surrendered and you still stand in rejection of God? Uh, th this is the heart of the nations. Good news is Yahweh steps in. Yahweh steps in. The people are going gangbusters against him, and yet Yahweh steps in. Instead of just like destroying them, he steps in. And, and thankfully, the Lord does indeed step in. He always has stepped in. And it doesn't take him long to step in to restrain the evil in Babel. And he intends today to restrain the evil in the nations until the last days when the restraints will be removed. And as the Lord steps in, we're given a clear indication of who God is and what he's doing. And it's the second part of this sermon is this. The heart of God is to purposefully redeem a people from among the nations. So the heart of the nations is the purposeful rejection of God. Well, the heart of God is to purposefully redeem a people from among the nations, from among those who reject him. What mercy? Just to jump ahead for a second. What we come to here is the pinnacle of the story. Um, po poetically, it's the pinnacle of the story, and it's just the pinnacle of the story. Matter of fact, this, this whole text is so important to our worldview of Scripture entirely something that we tend to kind of just see as a, like a, a moment in history that's like an unfortunate moment. It's, it's, okay, it's unfortunate on the one hand. On the other hand, it is absolutely glorious because God is, shows himself to be the judge and merciful in every way. It says here, the Lord, in verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And if you know anything about Yahweh, he's omniscient and he's omnipresent. So just with a nod of the head or a shake of the head, did he need to come down to see this tower? He did not need to come down. So there's something different going on here. Um, and I'm not going to get into all the, I mean, this, this chapter 10, and this is true of all of Scripture, but Gen, Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 
are worth reading about, are worth your study, just to consider uh, what is going on. And it helps, it's going to help describe going to help explain some of the things that are going on in the rest of Scripture and why there's a whole kingdom of darkness and kingdom of light. So we know that Yahweh doesn't need to come down. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He sees everything. He knows everything. Most commentators agree that there's kind of a mocking thing that's going on here where, you know, mankind thinks they built something so amazing and up into the heavens even, And God, who is in the heavens, has to come down and kind of like, oh, oh, there it is. So that's what people tend to think. It's like a, it's a, it's a mocking of human self-importance. It's a mocking of, of mankind thinking they're all that. And it really is ridiculous to consider how much we make of ourselves. There's a lot of greatness. There's a lot of common grace. There's a lot of a, a, a just amazing stuff that humankind does that God has given us to do and to, to conquer, for sure, to create, to, um, to manage, to redeem, to all of that. But we think we're so big. We think we're so powerful. We think we're so intellectual. We think we're so creative, so independent, so supreme. My, my heart is acting up. And so, so it's, like, it's like, who keeps my heart beating? Who keeps my breath breathing? Who keeps us listening even right now? Who keeps us out moving around? Who keeps us alive? Well, we do. My doctors, my drugs, my... No, Yahweh does. God does. God is the God. He, he is not impressed with all of our creations, all of the stuff, all of our intelligence. He, he is... It, it certainly is, is a reflection of His image, a reflection of His greatness, of His glory, of us utilizing those giftings and everything. But you see, we take all the gifts of God and we make them, you know, glory, glory to Steve, glory to Josh, glory to Dave, glory to Joy, glory to… Certainly the cigarette was impressive, but from God's perspective, the true God's perspective, it was so small He had to come down and see. If we were to compare ourselves really to the God who made us, we really knew Him increasingly, we would recognize we're, we're small. We've sat at this ocean. you sat at the ocean, right? How big is the ocean? You feel small. You get onto a vista of like up, out in Colorado and you see this beautiful, beautiful mountain range and you realize, wow, I'm so small. You watch a movie about space and they go up into space or, or you see them... Um, uh, pictures from the moon, and you see how small we are in the grand scheme of everything, and yet we make so much of ourselves. Isaiah 40 says this, do you, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. These, these sons of Ham and, and of Nimrod were so proud of themselves in their thought that they could reach up to heaven with the tower they built in their self-assurance and self-reliance. And we are often much the same. Surely the nations are around us as, 
well. But God is so highly, exceedingly exalted above us that he had to come down as it were to see the achievement. Still the Lord says this in verse 6. The Lord said, behold, they're, they're one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they'll do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This is a problem, not because God is threatened, not because God is against progress, human progress, but because he in his mercy is opposed, opposed to the progress that is happening that is absolutely godless. Because it's neither progress for his glory, nor is it progress for the good of humankind. And he came, to, he came down to oppose that proud, arrogant people who are evil and rejecting him so fully. He came down specifically to oppose them. He knows that if the people are successful in defying him now, who knows what they will propose to do next. They're all together, and they're just doing so much wickedness, increasingly so. If they all remain united in their proud attempts at self-effort and self-worship, there would be no limit in its unrestrained rebellion against God. There would be devastation uh, from shore to shore across this globe. The kingdom of man would displace the kingdom of God if that could happen, if left to itself for the sake of the plan and spread of his kingdom. God must intervene. And see, God, mankind cannot usurp God's role. God will always see to it that he is going to make a name for himself. God will always see to it that he will redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever. But these people right here, they were so unified against him, so unified that there was just so much destruction, so much uh, defiance that we see throughout the rest of Scripture that he decided to do something. And here are three things that he decided to do. First thing, verse 7, he confuses the unity of their language. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And by confusing their language, Yahweh shatters their self-reliant unity. I've been to a foreign country. I know there's you know, plenty of us who have been in foreign countries, and it's just a, when you don't know the language, there's a, there's just difficulty. Um, in this case, shattered their self-reliant unity and defiant cooperation and the rejection of God for whom they exist. God shatters this anti-God kingdom in order to begin his kingdom on earth afresh with Abram and Israel and through Christ and his church, and Dan will get to some of that next week. The evil of Babylon will not control the whole earth, but now nations will be disunified, and God's kingdom like, uh, like yeast, like the way that he talks about it in, in the Bible, is like yeast, just like it's going gonna, it's gonna to go through the nations. So he confuses the unity of their language. And I will just say, just a side point that, that I don't have time really to go into, but all the come let us language, come let us, come let us, come let us, is all reflective of when Yahweh at the very beginning says, come let us make man in our image. And, um, and so there's a play on those words poetically throughout this whole text, and that's worth another, that's worth a seminar or something. So he confuses their unity in language, but he also scatters the nations across the earth. So the Lord dispersed, verse 8, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. The people of Babel feared being scattered. They didn't want to obey the command of God to be fruitful and multiply across the earth, and they wanted to stay together and, and just um, 
not spread the glory of God's name, but spread the glory of their own name among their own little nation. They wanted to stay put, safe in the confines of the security of their own wisdom, and at its core, that was demonic, absolute rejection of God and His will. In spite of their disobedience, the Lord accomplished exactly what His will was. Verse 9 says, Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from the Lord, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And we go back to Genesis 10 then and see the nations spreading. God scatters the nations. Both of these acts are judgment against the nations. No longer were they able to communicate, to build the city and temple, and they were scattered. They couldn't do it anymore. But amid judgment, as I alluded to earlier, we find the mercy of God. By confusing their languages and by dividing them, God restrained the evil, the peoples of the earth, from committing so much evil. By pouring out this judgment, evil was restrained. These men and women were running full speed towards the establishment of the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of the Antichrist. But God showed mercy when He disrupted their plans. And He did so because He's absolutely committed to His plan to spread His glory among the nations and to redeem a people for Himself to dwell with forever. One last thing God does among the things that I'm sure are included elsewhere. The third thing is God gave the nations over to false gods. Now, recall that we're reading a text that was written specifically to the Israelites, and what they know to be true is that Israel is the people. They're the people of Yahweh, the God of all gods, the God above all other gods, His inheritance, His allotted heritage, and the nations were allotted to the other gods, the sons of God, per se. Now, now where do I get that? It's not in this text whatsoever. Um, It's in another text that Moses writes of to the Israelites that gives a bit more insight of what's going on here at Babel. He tells the people of Israel this in Deuteronomy 32. He says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father. He'll show you. Ask your elders. They'll tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion portion is His people, Jacob, His allotted heritage. There's way too much to go into here this morning, but it's really rather imperative that we grow in gaining a truly biblical worldview and not just read our Bibles through our modern Western mindset um, that doesn't take too kindly to, to any gods, much less one true God. This text in Deuteronomy specifically is speaking of this event in Babel. And it states that God, that is the Most High, gave to the nations their inheritance and fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Now, in some of our Bibles, it says, according to the sons of Israel. Problem being, at the time of Babel, there was no Israel. And unsurprisingly, Israel then wasn't included in the table of nations. According to the oldest manuscripts, Israel then wasn't included in the table of nations. According, again, to the oldest manuscripts, the phrase mentioned in this verse is, in fact, sons of God. Uh, Messengers, the Septuagint says messengers of God. And we've seen this before in Genesis, specifically in Genesis 6, 
when we read of the sons of God, which I made a point to equate to fallen angels, having relations with the daughters of men, instigating so much evil after the flood happened. On Deuteronomy 32, Moses is reminding Israel of that which they already knew, specifically that Yahweh had allotted himself the people of Israel, which he will bring out of the line of Shem and through the person of Abram in particular, which we see in the second half of, of the, our text this morning. And he allotted the nations to the fallen angels, these false gods like Baal and Marduk and Molech, among others, real gods but lesser gods. And there will be the ones ruling the nations, and it's why the nations are ruthless. It's why the nations are uh, evil, false worshipers, false god worshipers throughout God's Word. The, the territories themselves were allotted to the number of these false gods. And again, these are not false as in fake gods. These are real gods. While they demand worship, they are not, they're demanding worship, but they are not worthy of worship. And are, while seeking glory for themselves and the nations that they rule, they reap judgment on themselves and all those who follow them in their kingdom of darkness. Throughout Scripture, the biblical authors unapologetically compare Yahweh to other gods. They say that Yahweh is greater among all other gods. There is no one like him. That's not just poetic, it's true. He is exalted above them all. There is no one among the gods like Yahweh. The ancient authors aren't comparing God to imaginary beings. Among the gods, there is no one else. He alone is the uncreated one. All others are created. He alone is the creator of heaven and earth, and no one else he alone is the uncreated one again. He, there, this is no polytheism where there's just this pantheon of, of, of gods. This is Yahweh that is far above all other gods, all other heavenly beings, that you shall not bow down and worship. There shall be no other gods before me. Think of Elijah's battle on Mount Carmel. I mean, how powerful is it that it's not just these guys just making fools of themselves on the mountain crying out to nothing. They're crying out to false gods who have power, but Yahweh sends fire and blows the whole thing up. God is, Yahweh, is so far high above every other god. You think about um, the god Dagon, when, when the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant goes before the false god Dagon, and Dagon keeps falling over every night in front of This is a, a real god who can do nothing but bow in the presence of Yahweh. Yahweh is far and above greater than anybody, any other god whatsoever of all the nations. These are real enemies of the king. You think about the defeat of Satan when Jesus rose victorious from the grave. There is no greater victory over the enemies of God. Real enemies, not just people, but the enemies, the sons of God, the demons. It was a babble where the nations were allotted to them. God gave mankind over to what they wanted. Similar to Romans 1, when God says, given you over to your own self-worship 
and worshiping the created thing rather than the created, rather than the creator. Herein is what God is doing at Babel. But God also takes a nation for himself. And he starts with someone out of the righteous line of Shem, again, that we can follow in the rest of the chapter, culminating in the man Abram, whom again we'll meet next week. This sets us up for the rest of the story of the Bible. It sets us up for the rest of the story. The story of God having stopped the enemy's attention, intention of squashing his plan by scattering the nations, only then to begin fulfilling his plan to redeem a people for himself to dwell with from among those very nations. Mile by mile, people group by people group, language by language, the God of all God spreading his kingdom into the dark, secular, pagan kingdoms of this world who are ruled by false gods and principalities and powers like Ephesians 6 speaks of, and all those who follow lock and step with their rejection of the true king and his kingdom, God's kingdom, which will know no end, will continue to spread into each nation that yet to this day lives for the ideals of the ancient Babylon. And his kingdom will be built amid the demonic rubble of self-glorifying men and women. And as the gospel of Jesus Christ is spread, as the glory of the one true God is spread across the globe, as the gods of the nations are still to this day helpless to stop the continued spread of the kingdom of God, God will redeem a people for himself to dwell with from among the nations. His heart is purposed to do so. Nothing will stay his hand. Nothing will stay his hand. There is no one greater than Yahweh. He does all that he pleases in the heavens and on this earth. Glory to God. Now for the Israelites, as we close, the narratives would have been given, would have given them hope to go forward into the land of the promise, the land of the Canaanites, this, these, these people that were evidently enormous people, or at least included enormous people. They'd been chosen to be his people, and, and blessing would come as they surrendered to him, and they follow him, and, and to love him all the days of their life. And of course, we know the story of Israel. What is the number one thing they do? They choose to reject God, and they choose to follow the gods of the nations. Not just the nation, the gods of the nations. So they begin to worship the gods of the nations. Solomon's issue, when he was king, Israel had grown so much during Solomon's reign. Solomon was flawed in a couple of ways. One was with women, so many women, but his big thing was that he started marrying women who were part of the other nations, and not just because they're part of the other nations, but because they worshiped the gods of the nations and that he became very non-responsive to God as well until the end of his life. For the church today, this narrative gives hope that God will, in fact, one day absolutely shatter the power of self-reliant, secular, godless, demonic society who supposes they live without any accountability. The Apostle John states clearly in Revelation 18 that the great Babylon, the seducer of all the nations and kings, will utterly fall. Now the church today, this church, the church in general, lives in the time between the initial fulfillment of God's promise of blessings for the nations and that final fulfillment. Today the church finds itself in another age of fear, 
people are fearful of all sorts of things. You, you, again, you watch the news, it's North Korea and China and Russia and this country and this country and nuclear this and nuclear this and economic this and economic that and, and pandemic, no pandemic, all, just all sorts of stuff, all sorts of things. And the nations seek to deal with this by, uh, by, by trusting in themselves and their own wisdom and, and arming themselves to the teeth or doing whatever. What else is there to do? That's all they've got. And Christians may be tempted to seek security, not in God, but in, but in a nation or in money or, or whatever. The story of Babel tells us that our human resourcefulness and greatest accomplishments means little in the eyes of God if they go against His purposes. Our, our ultimate security lies not in human strength, nor does it nor does it rest in intellect or self-reliance. Our security really does, really must lie in the transcendent, sovereign God alone. He alone is the God of gods. He alone is our God, the one that we can trust entirely for all things. He is the one who is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. He is the one who is able to break down all demonic kingdoms that oppose his redemptive purposes for the world and for his people. He alone is able to bring a peaceable kingdom on earth. He alone is able to redeem a people from every tribe and nation and tongue, and he will do it. He's absolutely committed to it. Nothing will stand in his way. And I think of Psalm 2, um, just in, in, in really, really, we're closing here, when Yahweh says this, why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. Let us be free of this God nonsense. And he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. This is the story of Scripture. The nations and their gods striving against Yahweh, the one true God. Will the kingdom of God prevail? Well, let's let the Apostle John answer. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The sovereign plan of the sovereign king to restore his glorious kingdom on earth is meant to provide hope to you and me amid the darkness of the secular kingdom around us, and yes, I'm saying the United States of America. Or Canada. Or Great Britain. You name the nation. May you and I live in the blessings of this sure hope. May, may some here this morning follow the call of God to a foreign land that serves a false God, perhaps the false God of Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or secularism, and proclaim the glory of God and the hope of the gospel with the certainty that God, our God, will redeem some in those countries for the glory of his name as he spreads his kingdom. I think of Turkey, I think of the Middle East, and I think of India, and of course I think of Africa and former Soviet Union countries. And of course, I think of, of Dayton, Ohio, a wonderful city that has for too long tried to make a name for themselves in the rejection of God. 
how great we are in Dayton, Ohio. May you and I go in the power of the Spirit, armed with the Word of God and the love and sacrificial servanthood of Christ to any and all of those places for the glory of God, that on that final day, when we see the Lord face to face, we will bow before the worthy Yahweh and His, Savior and His Christ and cry out this, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the story we get to live in. We, God is not living in our story. We are living in His. We are, we, are, we are part of His mission. He is not part of our mission, first and foremost. He is redeeming a people for Himself to dwell with. We don't redeem a people, but we proclaim the gospel. We proclaim Christ crucified, and we go to the nations. And so listen, one of the things we get to do this morning when we take the Lord's Supper is we get to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The hope of the nations, our hope, your hope, my hope, the hope of the nations is all found in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It is through Christ alone where people come to faith and the tribes and the nations and the people groups that have been under the oppression of the enemy and the darkness of the, that kingdom will be freed from that kingdom and be given life and be brought into the kingdom of light where God is working. God is working in this way. He will not let all men fall into the domain of darkness and stay there. He will redeem many for his glory and for the joy of his people. What a great privilege it is to be a Christian. Um, we're not better than anybody at all. We have been blessed through the promise of God, through Abram, through David, and specifically through Christ Jesus. And in him we live and move and have our being.